Welcome to the podcast version of Sunday Miscellany, which differs from the radio version for rights reasons. We hope you enjoy the program. I'd probably worry more about misplacing things as I grow older if I hadn't already been such a dab hand at it since childhood. Even now, my dearly departed mother's voice can ring out loud and clear inside my head. Were it a snake, it would have bitten you. As I discover something I've been turning the house upside down for has, in fact, been lying there under my nose all the while. A baseball glove, say, back when I was a kid, or my glasses, mobile phone, or bike helmet nowadays. A good job your head screwed on, else you'd be looking for that too. My mother sometimes throws in for good measure. Worse yet, my partner, Adrienne, is convinced I skipped a critical early childhood development stage, something called object permanence, whereby an infant gradually comes to understand that something, a teddy bear, say, still exists, even if they can no longer see it. Whereas I, my beloved points out, am instantly persuaded that if something's not in sight, whether a treasured book or a missing jumper, then odds are it's lost and gone forever. Our good friend Catherine, however, reassures me that habitually forgetting what you've come into a room looking for is more a function of something called liminality than a sign of aging. That once we go through a doorway, we are in a new liminal space, a sudden realm of brand new possibilities. And so we naturally enough dismiss whatever it was we'd been searching in, in another room, which makes perfect sense to me. I used to think that having been christened Anthony after the patron saint of lost things might have helped me more than it ever has. <laughs> Though to be honest, I'm more likely to end up talking to myself than to our man from Padua whenever my wallet goes missing for the second time in as many days. Nor, it seems, was any heavenly intervention by Saint Anthony recently sought by our friend Emma's boyfriend who somehow managed to persuade Belfast Airport security to hand over her treasured watch, a present for her 21st, after she'd frantically texted him from her London-bound plane on the runway that she'd forgotten to reclaim it from the small white plastic box wherein we place such things when going through security. Ringing Emma after her plane had touched down in Heathrow with the happy news of the watch, the poor lad couldn't believe his ears as she delightedly exclaimed down the line how fervently she'd prayed to St. Anthony, as if he'd been the only man on the job. <laughs> Such happy retrievals can also be occasioned by the kindness of strangers. Like that summer morning in Donegal years ago, when our elder four-year-old daughter shook me awake shortly after sunrise. Wanting to give those family members still a bed a chance of sleeping on, I decided to drive us to the nearby Silver Strand, hoping against the odds that I might find a favorite cap I'd lost walking there the evening before. A cap which, to my daughter's delight and my disbelief, she spotted hanging atop a stop sign at what passes for an intersection in rural Donegal, placed there by some kind soul who chanced upon it along the road. Thanks are due also to the beneficent stranger 
who two years ago spied that same daughter's firstborn son missing shoe, kicked out of his stroller on their journey that morning to his Drumcondra creche, and who kindly placed it onto the traffic railing at yet another, albeit far busier, intersection, where I spotted it a few hours later upon retracing their mile-long journey. At all times, however, I try to temper any Proustian joy at the rediscovery of things lost by reminding myself of that wonderful Sufi adage on the happiness of the superficial, that which a man who has lost his donkey feels upon finding it again. That said, there was certainly nothing superficial about my joy 25 years ago upon finding our younger two-year-old daughter up in Donegal after she'd gone missing in the village shop. Looking about on all sides for her, I failed to spot the delighted smile on the face of Breege behind the counter, who, unlike my sad, sorry self, could see how I was in fact holding that very daughter in my arms as I looked about me on all sides for her. <laughs> when did you get worse than you were, as they might ask, up in Donegal? Hardbacked, with a dark green cover. The smaller of the two notebooks is an autograph album. Looking at it now, I wonder if, apart from the scrawl requested in haste of somebody famous, does anyone still collect samples of the handwriting of their own friends? The first entry, a birthday greeting, is undated. The curious part of me, a very large part actually, immediately wants to know more. What year are we talking about here? What season? The name of the writer, Marie, occurs with such frequency throughout the little book that I imagine her to have been an important feature of the dedicatee's life. I flick through the pages which, when new, must have been pretty in shades of green, pale gold and mauve. Over the years, the colours have faded to near invisibility, but the ink remains clear. I move on to the second page and an entry that reads as follows. There is much bad in the best of us, and much good in the worst of us, that it hardly behoves any of us to speak about the rest of us. Underneath this gem of wisdom and language, behoves... Now, there is a word not heard much lately. There are three elegant and entirely undecipherable initials. 
but it is the date that catches my eye. October 30th, 1914. The war to end all wars had begun, and it is possible that my three-initialed writer, like almost everyone at the time, imagined it would be all over by Christmas and wasn't giving the prophetic irony of the statement too much thought. I pick up the other notebook. Not as well preserved as the green one, the pages are looser and have fallen away completely in places. Over the years before I came to be its minder, postcards, drawings and newspaper clippings about beauty tips and long-gone film stars had been slipped between the covers and preserved. There are more dated entries in this notebook, the earliest being in 1911. The majority, however, are 1914. My knowledge of the owner of the notebooks is scant. What I do know is that she boarded at a school in the area of South Dublin where I grew up, in a convent attached to the primary school I was to attend much later. Another coincidence is that any of the few addresses there are centred in or about the area of North County Dublin in which I now live. Something in particular has always intrigued me. It's a pencil portrait of a young, good-looking man wearing one of the high starched collars fashionable at that time. He has an impressive moustache, fine dark eyes and an honourable expression. Looking at him now, I think that he was definitely someone upon whom a girl could depend. The drawing is dated 1914, but the words beneath were inscribed in 1912. Somebody has black inked an elaborate vine around the drawing. But it is the two cards, each postmarked with the name of a village only a few miles away from where I am now, and each addressed to another nearby village, which interest me most. Dated November 1914, they were originally blank, but have been drawn on by hand and signed by the person also responsible for the portrait of the young man. Unusually for either notebook, both postcards refer directly to the war. The first, in simple black and white, depicts a cork from a bottle of champagne flying off and clashing violently with the nose of a soldier wearing a German helmet. The words van, 1914, have been printed underneath. But it's the second, coloured in postcard that really gets to me. It features a cooking pot in which a cartoon pig sits wearing the same type of spiked helmet with the words Vive la Belgique written above him. His red tongue lolls to one side. A single fat tear falls from his eye. I think of all the real tears shed on both sides over those four long years. Of the young man in the framed pencil drawing of the girls who filled both notebooks with their beautiful handwriting and naive entreaties that they should always be remembered. And my heart breaks with the pity of war.
in the days before Ryanair, we emigrated to London on the boat and the train. I had 60 pounds and my cousin's address in my handbag, but there was duty free on the ferry from Dunleary, and as I needed to equip myself for my new life as a Londoner, I spent 25 pounds on 200 Silcote purple and a bottle of Malibu. <laughs> I was 18. I was more than ready for London. There was a cool and beardy man who ran a record label and an airline with the name Virgin, and he didn't mean the Virgin Mary. I had decided that he was going to employ me, and that my job was going to be in the music business. But if he wanted me to work in the New York office of Virgin Atlantic, I probably wouldn't mind too much. We were determined to get out of Dublin, away from school, study, and parental supervision. We thought we'd be hanging out in West End nightclubs with Jules Holland, George Michael, and the actors from The Professionals. I had a CV with me, which might have stretched the truth about my leaving search results, but emphasized my importance to the school debating team and drama club. I had references from a couple whose twins I babysat. <laughs> I probably wouldn't get to the executive floor right away, but with my excellent spelling skills, I wouldn't be too long in an entry-level position. By the time the train pulled into Euston Station, I had determined that I'd give Margaret Thatcher a run for her money. <laughs> After a few nights on my cousin's floor, using the evening standard and a phone box, I found a flat in the less salubrious end of Islington. Hackney, some might call it. In reality, getting a job in London wasn't difficult if you were literate and could speak English. But disappointingly, Richard Branson did not reply to my letters, and the type of work I got was less prestigious than I'd hoped. Through a temp agency, I got a few weeks' work photocopying and filing for an estate agent. I'd never seen a photocopier before, but by day three, the novelty had worn off. <laughs> I recall going to the supermarket after cashing my very first paycheck. It wasn't a lot of money, but it was all mine, and I had earned it myself. There was no one to supervise or criticize my shopping choices. I could spend it how I liked. So sensibly setting aside money for rent and my tube fare, I spent the rest on sweets. <laughs> it was an interesting dietary experiment. Thereafter followed various short-term jobs, three days in an East End gallery, two days in a cafe in Soho, and one unfortunate morning in a fashion house in Kensington, where I had been set to work cutting extremely expensive musquash fur. The home economics teacher, who said that I should not be trusted with the needle and thread, could have predicted the outcome. <laughs> Thank God they didn't sue. <laughs> Two months later, I was working as a clerical assistant in an unemployment benefit office in Marlebone. Far from presenting a challenge to Margaret Thatcher, I was now working for her. <laughs> it wasn't exactly what I had in mind, but it was permanent, and there were prospects. The nightclubbing never happened either. I couldn't afford it. We'd go to the Globe on Listen Grove after work on a Friday for one or two drinks, and then the weekends would be spent underground, travelling vast distances to other parts of London to visit friends. 
I wasn't miserable, however. I thoroughly enjoyed my independence and got on well with my work colleagues. Surprisingly, I was promoted within two months and eventually moved to Green and Leafy Ealing. But by November of that first London year, I was heartachingly homesick and began to save up for my trip home for Christmas, outraged that I was only getting four days holidays instead of the two weeks I'd got in school. I couldn't wait to see the people I'd been desperate to get away from only six months earlier. In those days, emigrants returned by boat too, the less successful ones anyway. As the Sea Link ferry eased gracefully into the open arms of the East and West Pier, I knew for sure that I would not stay in London forever, that London was just a phase I was going through. We drove across the island of Mull in Scotland with increasing anticipation. We were on our way to the smaller island of Iona. I could not help but think of St. Columba, sent from Ireland into exile in 563 AD, and his crossing over to Iona from Ireland. I could sense the pitch and roll of the high, proud boat that brought him across that difficult sea. I could feel the ocean surge in my heart and stomach, the sudden spray, the swash of seawater onto the boards. How Columba and his companions felt helpless, like white moths of foam flung about in the seal-black thunderstorms that often burst out on the open sea. We parked the car in the small village of Fienport, still on Mull, took our sparse luggage and walked down to the ferry. The sacred island of Iona lay just across the sound. It looked peace-filled and sun-warmed, though in Columbus' time it would have been undeveloped and rough. The ferry takes barely a few minutes, and we stepped onto the firm ground of the island, our hearts rising with quiet joy. We had come to this sacred place, fully aware that Columba was doubly an exile in removing himself from everyday living to become a monk. The severity of mind for such sanctity seeks stone and wind-washed wilderness. We stood a moment on the beach in awe of this heroism of the saints. We gazed down into the purest of seawater, almost still now over white sand. I could see the bladderwort, many-colored, flopped bunting weed, the sheen on the sea-drenched stones, and between the sea and road, there was bracken and its moods, its petulant browns, its roistering colours. And such colours, such fluid and shifting shapes, side by side with the permanent and timeless. Iona 
its landscape, its shorescape, appeared at once to offer colours and fluid images, as well as the gratifying permanence of stone to lighten the demands on the monks as they copied out the scriptures. In the abbey, I could dream of Columba's ancient monastery and see the monks at prayer. After their singing of the psalms, some of them would go to their cells to work on the copying of the gospels. And meantime, a craftsman down by the rocky shore would be shaping stones. There are the sounds too of gulls' cries. There is snipe flight, there is sea surge, there is chipping and sharding, spiral and cross outlined in blood pigments. And all the years stretched on ahead for the precise chiseling, the laboring towards perfection. We went on down to the cove where the saint and his monks had probably come ashore so many centuries ago. We walked on clover, both red and white, in the softest of mossy grasses, down to the white beach, where we discovered so many tiny and perfect orange-gold cowrie shells lying everywhere. They were like the tiny curlicues from a page of the Book of Kells. And of course, I remembered that it was here that that magnificent book had been begun, worked on lovingly and tenderly, and then it had been lost to the island. It was easy to imagine the monks in the quiet of their cells, stooped over the vellum, working. And I could see a quill carefully held in a delicate hand, moving slowly over the page, catching sunlight, the gold ink dulling a little as it was applied, the lapis lazuli, the emerald, the care in every line and curve, and even in that blot, quickly erased. I could see the monk working in a dream of absence, drawing down the vellum's edge a long, curling and intertwining vine, and to draw it up the edge of the page opposite. And there are angels everywhere, busy as air about their pages. The words are sacred, written out in the sky-blue Latin tongue, in principio erat verbum. I stood a while in the bright shallows of seawater, gentling over fine white sand, my feet bare to the cold and salt sea. I could feel the sand eels caress my skin, see them swirl in the water like little strings of water, their shadow strings beneath them seeming more substantial than they. When all at once I remembered how the peace and labours of this sacred island had been shattered by the invading hordes of Vikings, how the abbey was pillaged by the violence of these terrifying foreigners, how the monks were slaughtered without mercy, and I could almost hear their screams of incomprehension and pain. Later, as we set out again to travel home to Ireland, I thought once more of Columba and his monks, how they did occasionally come back to visit Ireland, and how the great book on which the monks had been working had to be moved secretly from the island of Iona and sent to a safe monastery in Ireland, to Kells in County Meath. Something of inordinate value was brought back to Ireland, though the remains of the saints and his monks are resting forever on the island of exile. And one of the most beautiful artefacts ever crafted came to be known as the Book of Kells and not the Book of Iona. Thank you.
photograph fell from the book and my daughter peered at it. Who are they? The same curly hair, the same long skinny bodies, the same cheeky grins. It all came back to me then. We'd held secret clubs in my garage. We had rules which we never broke. The most important one? Best friends forever. Nothing could possibly make us break that one and we were always having adventures together. That night, when the photograph fell from the pages of my past, one memory in particular surprised me. It was early September, and the two of us had decided to cycle to Kalini Hill. Halfway there, we brought our bikes to a halt at an old water trough and slumped on a bench beside it. Across the road, there was a high stone wall with flowers growing out of its cracks, and we climbed over into the field beyond a green secret place, high trees whispering in welcome. Then we spotted the barrels. It was heavy rolling them through the long grass and balancing the planks up against them, but it seemed like a perfect idea. Whoever ran the obstacle race the quickest was the winner. I was the first to start. I remember how hot it was, the sun beating down on my arms as I took off racing across the field. White butterflies rose around me and I dived through the first barrel and out the other side. I picked up speed, my feet pounding on the dry ground. Just then it happened. A loud buzzing sound in my ears. Pain like furious arrows all over my bare skin. Wasps. I'd stood on a wasp's nest. There was a splash of wet on my hair and I realised my friend was pouring her bottle of water over my head to stop me being stung there. She pulled me across the field and pushed me over the old wall. We raced to the bikes and took off as fast as we could, but the wasps were not going away. Their home had been destroyed and we were to be punished. Down the hill we sped, the wasps buzzing all around us, I was their main target, and they stung at me wherever they could. The tips of my ears, my fingers, my ankles. I was yelling so much that some even tried to sting inside my mouth. After that, I kept my lips firmly closed. Just as we came near to the edge of our road, the wasps seemed to lose energy. And to our huge relief, they turned about and swarmed away back up the hill. Suddenly, everything went silent. We pulled our brakes and both stared at each other. We felt as if we'd just returned from a huge war, but there was nobody there to welcome us back. We banged on the door of my house, no answer. I could see through the sitting room window my brother lounging on the couch, the television up loudly. He 
He stared at us for a moment, raised his eyes to heaven, and then turned away. But we, we had to get inside. A dizzy feeling was creeping through my body, and any minute now, any minute now, just as the front door opened, I fainted, only to open my eyes later, my mother busily dabbing vinegar on all the stings to draw the poison out. So many dead wasps stuck to my laces, inside my jeans pockets, everywhere. If there was ever a reason for not going to school, I knew this was it. <laughs> but the next day, I found myself in the schoolyard and my friend absent. The news was out. She'd been stung by a wasp and her eye had swollen up as big as the world. I'd been stung at least 20 times and she was the school hero. <laughs> I remembered how she'd poured water over me and saved me from being dangerously stung. That must have been when her eye got hurt. She'd been brave. Our friendship had rules. The sting of my jealousy subsided. That was all years ago. And the field near Kalini Hill has long been built upon, disappeared. But when we were nine, the same age as my daughter is now, we'd scrambled over those silver stones winking in the heat and jumped down into a marvellous place with wild flowers and butterflies flitting by. And on that hot day long ago, before the obstacle race, before the wasps, before we both grew up, grew apart, we thought nothing between us would ever change. After all, there were rules and we were best friends forever. I put the photograph back in the book, kiss my daughter goodnight and turn off the light. That was Sunday Miscellany live at the Pavilion Theatre in Dunleary, part of DLR Mountains to Sea Book Festival, and it was recorded in 2014. The producer was Clean and Ian Lewin. The scripts were Object Permanence by Anthony Glavin, Autographs by Enda Coyle Green, A Teenage Emigrant by Liz Nugent, On Iona was by John F. Dean, and Best Friends Forever by Enda Wiley. The music was Theme from The Umbrellas of Cherbourg by Michel Legrand and Antino from Sonata for Treble Recorder and Piano by Joseph Gruco, performed by Leesh O'Brien on Recorder and Porico Cunagan on Piano. Bulgarian Folk Dance performed by Dermot Dunn on Accordion, Catherine Hunka on Violin and Maliki Robinson on Bass. Allegro Molto from Sonato for Treble Recorder and Piano, also by Joseph Gruco, played by Leesh O'Brien and Porico Cunagon. And the love theme from Cinema Paradiso by Ennio Morricone, played by Dermot Dunn, Catherine Hunka and Maliki Robinson. 
And if you'd like to go along to a live miscellany show, the programme will be at the Dock Arts Centre in Carrigan Shannon in County Leitrim next Friday evening. That's the 6th of October as part of the Iron Mountain Festival. Guests on the Miscellany Evening include Zach Moradi, Kathleen Hill, Vincent Woods, Zoe Basha and Eleanor Shanley. And other guests over the weekend at Iron Mountain include Claire Keegan and Gary Young. If you'd like to come along, there are a small number of tickets for the entire festival still available through the website. That's ironmountainfestival.com. And we'll be announcing more live events for Miscellany over the coming weeks. Sunday Miscellany's broadcast coordinator is Elaine Conlon. The producer is Sarah Binchy. And you can listen back to the programme on the RTE Radio Player or at rte.ie slash radio one slash Sunday Miscellany. You've been listening to the Sunday Miscellany podcast. For more from us, you can follow the programme on Facebook, Twitter, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany.